0: Thank you, choir. And thank you, Pam, for reading. If we're being honest with ourselves, we'll acknowledge that it was always there from the beginning. And so we should have been able to pick up on it before now. One man, a shepherd, a nomad, wandering in the wilderness being chosen out of all of the nations of the world as the one through whom the entire creation would find redemption. His great-grandson Joseph, the precocious little runt of the litter, who was so irritated that his brothers finally had enough and sold him into bondage, being the one to save the family from famine baby moses being plucked from the nile in order to redeem his people david another aggravating runt being anointed as god's chosen king esther saving her people from annihilation in the days of king xerxes own and own and own Throughout the stories of God's people, we see God choose the small things of this world to work through. The overlooked things, the supposedly weak things, the poor of the world, the little brothers of the world, the women, those who had been dismissed and disregarded by everybody else around them. Thus, when we come to a text like the one from Isaiah this morning, we probably ought not be surprised. Out of the stump of Jesse, behold a shoot. Something growing, seemingly perhaps by accident, out of a stump long assumed dead, the tiniest of plants. A shoot. Not a sapling, not even a seedling yet, just a shoot, a few tender leaves clinging to the slimmest of trunks, so small that you would miss it if you did not know where to look. And yet, Isaiah says, as its leaves begin to unfurl and its roots branch out below, this is the place where the Spirit of the Lord chooses to fall. Not on a mighty tree, but upon a shoot. The passage goes on from there, of course. Some of you may know it by heart. We're shown the image of a lamb dwelling with a wolf. A kid, which is another name for a baby goat lying down with a leopard, a calf, and a lion. All of them there together. Lambs, kids, calves. The emphasis is again on the small things in these verses. The weak things, the vulnerable things. Perhaps they're just there out of mercy. Perhaps they're there as a kindness. Perhaps they're there tolerated just for a time by the wolves and the big cats surrounding them. But no. Because we are also told that all of these creatures, predators and prey alike are being led by a small child. And we realize that there is something else going on here altogether. That this is a new thing that God is doing in our world. And yet, as I pointed out at the beginning, perhaps it is not so new after all. After all, it was a shepherd's sling in the hands of a boy that felled the mighty Goliath. After all, it was a cloud on the horizon no larger than a man's fist that let Elijah know that the drought was over. After all, it was barely more than a child's lunch, two fish, some bread, They wouldn't even sell you that little bit of food at Captain D's that got used to feed the multitudes out in the wilderness. After all, Christ tells us, it is faith the size of a mustard seed that can move mountains when needs be. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, after all, when we see our God working through the small things of this world. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What about the rest? The big things, the mighty, the powerful. What happens to them Well, if we think, then we can probably find spaces where they show up in Scripture as well. Almighty Pharaoh, practically a god himself, foundering beneath the waves of the sea. The mighty Canaanite general Sisera, brought low by the Hebrew girl Jael. The terrifying Philistines brought to their knees, suddenly stricken by a raging case of hemorrhoids as punishment for their bullying ways. It's First Samuel 5. You can actually go and look that one up. <laughs> Even Saul, Israel's own first king, is brought low and set aside once he gets too big for his own britches. For centuries now, scholars and theologians and Christians of all stripes have debated whether or not it's true that God has a preferential attitude towards the poor in comparison to the wealthy. And wherever we may land in that debate, it is fair to say within the books of Scripture that God clearly displays a preferential attitude towards the small in comparison to the mighty. In the passage that Pam read for us just a moment ago, you may have noticed that we did not begin reading at chapter 11, verse 1, as is so often the case on this second Sunday of Advent, but instead we began reading at the end of chapter 10. That's because chapter 10 ends with a corollary to what we find at the beginning of chapter 11. Just as chapter 11 opens with the blessed shoot that is barely now emerging from the stump of Jesse, chapter 10 ends with the word about how all of the other mighty trees of the forest will fare. Spoiler alert, it's not good. The tallest trees, Isaiah says, will be cut down, the thickets hacked with an axe, the mightiest boughs lopped off with a terrifying power. Those who have long stood against the hillsides and cast long shadows across everything beneath them, cast down on the day of the Lord. This isn't a one-off in Isaiah. It's actually a theme. Back in chapter 2, for example, if we had looked, we would have found these words. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. All that is high and lifted up against all of the cedars of Lebanon and against all of the oaks of Bashan. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled. The pride of everyone shall be brought low. This final sentence, of course, confirms something long suspected. Chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 11. These are not stories about trees, but about people. The tender shoot emerging from the stump of Jesse, the thickets hewn with an axe, the mighty bows lopped off with terrifying power. people, And here in chapter 2, we learn something about these people. The big trees, the cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan are known to those around them for their haughtiness and their pride. And that is why, God says, they need to be humbled. That is why they need to be brought low. Now contrast for a moment that haughtiness with the general attitudes of the small and the vulnerable and the young of the world. Think, for example, how much babies want to be picked up, how they want to be carried, how they reach up to us for it. Think about how comfortable they are having their bodies manipulated, arms and legs moved about as needed, diapers changed, creams applied, clothes chosen for them, and then put on. Think about how much they like to be tickled, how much they enjoy it, how they will even at times Ask for it and then try for a second imagining yourself or any other adult asking for the same. Offering up the opportunity for somebody to take control from you in that way. To give up control. Even if just for a moment. But even more than that, to give up your dignity and your pride. Things in this world that are not so easily retrieved. I think my point is this. All small life, all young life, at least, I should say, knows that life is itself a gift, that life is simply received knows that it's really just along for the ride knows that life is guarded and is bounded always and everywhere by the by the care and the carefulness of those who are around it and the rest of us whether it's on a farm or in a kennel, whether it's in a hospital delivery room or perhaps in a garden bed as we watch the tiniest, tiniest, most delicate shoots spring from the earth. Whenever we come into contact with new life, we are reminded of the giftedness of life ourselves how little any of us really are ever in control, how this, all of this, isn't something that we have wrought for ourselves. And it's only as we are distanced from that truth as we venture out from our earliest years, as we grow, as we age, as we become more worldly or perhaps as we become worldly wise. Only then do we convince ourselves that life is not defined by the gifts that we receive but instead by those things that we earn, that we take. It is only when we get big, when we come to think of ourselves as big, to define ourselves as big, important, formidable, only then do we decide that life is ultimately defined by control, by winning and by losing, and it is then, that we decide that to be out of control is in fact the most terrifying thing of all. So perhaps that is why in scripture as in life, God so often chooses to work through the small things around us. The simple things, the vulnerable things, things that know better than to assume that they have got it all under control. Perhaps they are the ones, to go back to the language of Isaiah 11, who can best receive the Spirit of the Lord, who can receive the wisdom and the understanding and the counsel and all of the rest of it the ones who know how to receive that kind of hope from outside of themselves and how to rest easy within it instead of trying to grasp it for themselves and take control. And if that's the case, If the great and the mighty of this world, because of their haughtiness and their pride and all the rest, are somehow constitutionally unable to receive the good news as readily as their smaller, more vulnerable neighbors, then you and I, insofar as we are big and mighty and powerful, you and I may have a few things that we need to learn before that young child shows up to meet us in three weeks' time. Thanks be to God. Amen.